on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho, which is really all you need. All right, this week, fall is for falling in love. And Oliver's just barely containing himself when he goes inside the huddle with dreamy tenor Charles Castronovo. Oliver doesn't remember a thing they talked about in this interview, so you'll just have to listen along with us to find out. And in the two-minute drill, a secret relationship with your girlfriend's sister. Then the three of you plot to kill their mother. It's not a Verismo opera. It's real life. And the villain is a countertenor. If you're watching via TDO, subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. And with that, Oliver, how's it going? Folks, today is Monday, October 18th, and we just got news as we were putting this show together that mm-hmm. the legendary Edita Gubarova has passed away at the age of 74. Um, we obviously would have dropped dropped everything we were doing and done a tribute to her um, if there was enough time. And we've already... Uh, planned our Halloween show. So we will be doing our proper tribute to Edita Kubrova on November. What day would that be? November 3rd? Uh, that sounds uh, yeah, right. On the November <laughs> we'll <find> so <laughs> we are acknowledging that this happened. This is a huge, huge deal to us. Yeah. Um, and so um, thank you for your patience. And we wish uh, Edita Kubrova's family uh, peace. And uh, we're so sorry for your loss. In sports news, I have none, but luckily Ashley uh, wrote in to give me something to read, so I'll just kind of struggle through here. Ed Orgeron, at, at, who is the uh, head coach at LSU, this is the one we talked about uh, in the last listener mailbag a while back, if you remember that. He is out after a per- poor performance and ignoring sexual harassment claims, which is not what we like to see. Uh, and honestly... <laughs> good on uh, LSU for, you know, pushing him out. What if we did that to like certain general directors in opera yeah. who might have known things about sexual harassment, not done, done anything about them. I'm not going to say any more than that, but, but wasn't uh, the Raiders coach also fired for homophobic tweets or something? Oh, probably. Okay. <laughs> I missed that story. If that's true. Uh, in other sports news, uh, British tennis player, Cameron Norrie, has reached a career-high singles ranking of number 15 in the world after defeating the Georgian Nikolos Basilashvili in yesterday's Indian Wells Masters men's final. And Spanish-American player Paula Badosa also reached her career-high of number 13, defeating Victoria Azarenka in the women's file of Indian Wells. No disrespect, but if you're like me, you're like, who? (laughs) (laughs) Why do the top players like lose form or just not give a poop when it comes to these last tournaments of the season. Um, yeah, this, this, his season has been a mess and um, this last major um, masters final is sort of like a snooze fest. So I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Speaking as a Bama yeah. football fan, I'm right there with you, Oliver. <laughs> no disrespect to Cameron Norrie or to Paula Badoza, but um, if everybody was playing the way they're supposed to playing, supposed to be playing, uh, there's no way something like this would happen. But congratulations to both of you, and congratulations to us, Oliver, for doing this show all by ourselves without any help whatsoever. It's Let's season, talk some opera. It's season seven. It's supposed to be the best season yet of Opera Box Square. <laughs> Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So last week, I had the amazing privilege to talk to Charles Castronovo. Uh, and we recorded this interview. Actually, he was he did me such a solid and did my other show on WFMT, Listening to Singers. And uh, we had used up, you know, 60 minutes of our allotted 90 minutes working on that. And he had 30 minutes left, so he agreed to um, continue on and record this interview with me for Opera Box Score. And I had a whole punch list of things that I wanted to talk to him about, and I think I got through some of them. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't remember the interview anymore because he's just such 
too dreamy. A, he's a beautiful man. I'm just not I'm not gonna lie. He's beautiful, but he's also such an incredible singer. And you'll remember that uh Matt Cummings and I talked about his Lensky that he did here in mm-hmm. Chicago a couple of years mm-hmm. ago and how it was probably the best singing that was that happened by a male that year. I think that was the same year that Sandra Rudbanovsky sang Norma. So, you know, uh, but still, like of all the male singing we heard that year, uh, cis male singing, I guess. <laughs> um, no, Charles Kushnerova really left his mark uh, with his performance of Lenski, and then he was just in here in Chicago again doing Nemorino, in Elixir of Love. And we talk about this like it doesn't seem like a voice like his wants to sing Nemorino anymore, but he maintains that you know the great tenors, you know Carlo Bergonzi, Luciano Pavarotti. Even as they graduated into the more lirico spinto roles, they always tried to keep Nemorino uh, in the repertoire just to make sure that they were singing healthy and could, you know, it's such a great role. It's hilarious and it's got, you know, the very famous Una Futiva Lagrima in it. So we're going to go to this interview. Uh, another thing you should know about Charles Castronovo is that he is married to soprano Caterina Surina and they have two children together. So we definitely talk about what is it like to juggle being internationally sought after opera stars and raising two children. Absolutely. Um, And I wanted to talk to him about having uh, survived COVID. That's sort of like a part of his story now. Uh, He sounds like a million bucks, so I even forgot to mention it. Uh, But we're going to begin by um, listening to a little bit of Charlie, as he likes to be called, uh, singing one of the arias from um, Un Balo en Mascara, uh, and this is a video that he posted in his personal Facebook uh, after he was recovering from COVID just to test to see how he was sounding. And as you can hear, he sounds like a million bucks. <laughs> Charlie Casanova is my guest on Opera Box Score. I can't believe it. <laughs> is, yeah, we've, we've been talking about you on this show for so long. Um, oh, really? Oh, that's yeah, my, nice. <laughs> my co-host, Matt, and I uh, recalled your, or we declared that your um, Lensky, I forget how many years ago, three years ago, four years ago it was? Oh, three to four years ago, yeah. yeah. It was the best singing at Lyric Opera House that year by a man. Oh, I think that's you were really competing nice. with Sandra Rabinowski singing Norma or something like that. But yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's a but, different thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was definitely the most like moving and authentic and just deluxe toned Lensky I've ever heard. Um, and then I started like, who is this guy? Like, how come I don't know what's going on with him? So I went back to my recordings and I saw that you had a um, Rossini Stabat Mater. It was like, oh my God, like, from like 9 million years ago. <laughs> sound, is this the same guy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, um, <laughs> clearly from the time you made that Rossini recording till the time I heard you singing in Onegin, some things have happened. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you're back here in Chicago, which is why we're able to get you as a guest. Uh, and you have one more performance of Elixir of Love. And by the time the audience hears this, you'll already be back in Europe or wherever you're going next. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, can we talk about why you're singing Nemorino right now? Not that I'm ha- not happy about it. I'm actually thrilled <laughs> that you are. But, um, you know, is there a story as to why Nemorino at Lyric? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> actually, the story is it was supposed to be Manon from Massenet. Uh, that was the scheduled opera that I was uh, contracted for, uh, actually with the same cast. So, but from what I understand, uh, because of the COVID um, you know, craziness, uh, it's a huge cast in Manon. You know, not only is it the four, let's say, main principles, but there is a huge um, kind of uh, smaller role cast you know, with very important roles. Uh, you've got the three, I mean, there's just a ton of them. So um, I think in the end, they decided that it would be better to do something a bit more compact. And so they tried to find an opera that kind of just, translated over with the same uh, voice types that we had ready yeah (laughs) so um they came up with elixir which to be honest uh, at first i thought 
oh God, elixir, I haven't sung that in six or seven years or something. I'm not sure I want to do that. And, uh, but my manager, Alan Green, we were talking, he said, hey, listen, you know, you know, Caruso and Bergonzi and Pavarotti, they all sang Nemorino well into the very end of their career. He said, maybe it's nice and healthy. It's good. You know, it's a mix up from some of the other, let's say, more full things you're doing. And I thought, yeah, maybe you're right. I haven't been to America in a while. It would be nice. So in the end, I have to say, I've been having a ton of fun. It's been great. I was, uh, I was very pleased with myself that I was still able uh, to sing it, uh, you know, very well. The fast parts are, let's say, a little tricky, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's no coloratura, which would would have been a, a no-go for oh, me, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that thing yeah, is, is yeah. goes by pretty fast. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of kind of pattery stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm still able to do it. And, you know, the the the, the big problem with uh, Nemorino is it's not that it's high. It's just that it sits in the passaggio the whole evening nonstop and you're on stage all the time so you really uh have to be disciplined with your passaggio so for me it was like a test or a checkup to see if uh, if i've still got things in order and so for me it's been a very uh, positive uh situation <laughs> well i'd spoke to you recently for my other job and um i was just we were talking about the role of alfredo which you have yeah. a recording of now and so I'm just listening to your to your voice and thinking, oh, this guy is ready to sing, you know, Ricardo in Mass yeah. Ball or ready to sing Don Carlo. Yeah. Is that what's happening to you? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's been a slow process. I, I've always been patient enough, even when I didn't feel like being patient. I was patient enough, uh, um, you know, adding roles uh, slowly, you know, taking calculated risks when I felt it was uh, a good chance to do that. You know, the first time I sang Edgardo um, in Lucia, for example, was in Brussels. It was a nice, you know, relatively small opera house with a good acoustic. And uh, I remember my manager, him and I do well together because he always thinks I can do things uh, a certain role maybe two years before I think I can do it. So we sometimes find a happy medium, you know, where it's, you know, one year later, or sometimes we wait, or sometimes I think, you know what, maybe you're right. And I try it someplace small. And I say, you know what, you were right, I can do that pretty well now. <laughs> so we're going back and forth on this. But I remember with uh, Edgardo, for example, he was offer he was he had offers for me for two to three years. And I kept saying, I don't feel it yet. I don't think so. I don't think so. He said, Okay, fine, we'll wait, we'll wait. Finally, I did it. And um, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. And I said, you know what, I'm going to put it on hold for a couple of years. And, and we, you know, we have a lot of respect for each other said, okay, fine, you feel you want to put it on hold, let's do it. So we didn't do it again for about two and a half, three years. And when I did it the next time, of course, it was a lot better. And I felt more secure and everything was getting better. So this has been my method for my career. Uh, Some calculated risks to stretch and grow and then coming back doing some, even popping in a couple Mozarts that I don't do very much anymore, but still uh, every once in a while, and uh, something like Nemorino. So that has afforded me to grow. Uh, I finally hit puberty, and now I'm starting to sing uh, <laughs> some, you know, big, more manly roles. Yeah, you know? <laughs> big boy roles, yeah. All right, big boy roles, yeah. Huh, well... That that's a whole other topic which I wasn't prepared to talk with you about. So maybe we'll shelve it. But um, yeah, the, yeah. the idea of a manager who actually understands Fach and understands uh, the progression of roles and is also um, you know looking out for their artists to make sure that they're not doing something that they're not ready for. Yeah, that is a whole other show for I, I can imagine. But uh, just as a quick note, there are some who know that, but usually it's the type who first off, love singers, second off, is like a complete opera nerd, you know, they have to really know the rep, and the traditions of who sang those roles, you know, because there are many roles where you can find everyone from a dramatic tenor to a lighter tenor, you know, all successfully singing a certain type of role, or a certain role, you know, and uh, so there are many examples, it depends on your cast, it depends on where it is, so yeah, to have a manager that really knows that stuff, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit rare, so, and, but I think it's the singer's job to know that first, because if they know it, and maybe the manager doesn't know as much, you can still navigate the right way, you know, so it's really, it's on the singer's shoulders to really take care of that. Well, the, topic I did want to talk with you about 
uh, is one that's sort of an evergreen uh, for us, uh, which is the idea of being a parent uh, in this business. And also right. you have the double impact of having a partner, uh, Ekaterina Surina, who is also an internationally sought after artist. So you're looking at two opera singers with major careers. Yeah. Uh, can you please talk to us about what was it like to decide to start a family? Um, what type of support system you had? And I definitely want to get into some of the nitty gritty about like just the logi <laughs> yeah. logistics, like how yeah. do you like who takes a contract or do you yeah. just have full time help or are there parents involved? Uh, yeah. All of these things are very fascinating for us. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you have to kind of make up as you go. I, of course, I asked some colleagues who had been going through the same thing and everyone has their own method. Uh, everyone has their own support systems, you know, like my parents uh, we we didn't have the parent built-in support system as far as you know a, a grandma who will say okay i'll come take care of the kids full time some people are lucky enough to have that we didn't have that my mom helped you know in bits you know she'd stay a couple months with us and then then we wouldn't you know necessarily see her for a year because we'd be traveling so much and then she would come for a couple months travel a little bit and then go back home you know but um We've had plenty of nannies, you know, before, like au pairs. Sometimes they were great. Sometimes it didn't work out at all. You know, it was just kind of a disaster. Um, so we've tried everything. We, we used to homeschool uh, our older boy because we were traveling so much at the time, both of us. Um, and that was kind of okay for a while. Um, but he wasn't getting as much, uh, you know, kind of just interaction with people. Yeah. yeah, you know. And so at a certain point, he said, I kind of want to go to school. And I thought, yeah, that would be better for you. And plus, you know, I was not a, made to be a teacher. That's for sure. I can hang out online with him and make sure. But I mean, you know, by the time you get to sixth grade um, uh, math, you can count me out already. You know, my math is so bad. Yeah, I'm just like, what, what is this? This is not my job. You know? So, um, you know, I had a lot of respect for, uh, teachers after, especially after the lockdown, you know, having to do that stuff, mm. I thought, oh man, but, um, you know, we have played it, you know, kind of by ear most of the time, but I would say that, uh, my wife, Katharina, she, she, she never was crazy about the lifestyle of an opera singer anyway, even before we had kids. It wasn't really her thing. You know, she would like to go to a job and then come home and stay and do the garden and do normal things and then go for a nice job and then come back. Whereas I was completely different. I was just like, if I, if I'm not singing, if I'm not out on the road traveling, I'm getting a little bit crazy at home. So, you know, this is unfortunate, you know, that it, it didn't match that way, but in, what ended up happening was that she was staying home more often than me. And then on the other end, and this is just honestly technical, the way the business works, a lot of times, if you're a decent tenor, you can line up work quite early. So a lot of times I was getting good contracts before she would get a contract for the same time period. And then she was left with the dilemma of, should I just let you sing or do I want to sing too? And what are we going to do with the kids at that time? So, you know, it was always tricky, really tricky. Now that uh, we live in Berlin full time, um, she's home more often, uh, not only because a lot of things got canceled, but, uh, because she has chosen to, to do that more often, but they're at an age now, well, 14 and seven where, you know, sometimes a friend, friends of ours will stay for a few days and like, you know, they barely need any help. You know, they do a lot. They're very independent. They've traveled since they were kids all over the world. So, uh, if she's gone for a couple of weeks and I'm gone for a week of that, and then I come home, it's not a problem. You know what I mean? So, uh, time has gone very fast, but it hasn't, uh, stopped being tricky with the logistics, but it's always, I mean, maybe it's my Latin blood or something, but, you know, I always figure out a way, but sometimes it's last minute, you know, who's going to hang out with the boys.
Berlin. Yes. Have you always lived in Berlin? No. So we were in, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in New York, but I, I grew up in Los Angeles since I was about two years old. No, but with the, and, with the kid, once you guys started having yeah. a family. Yeah, that was definitely in L.A. It started in oh, L.A. Wow. because okay. my wife's from Russia. And, you know, if you if you take a, a girl from Russia and you show her Los Angeles and she doesn't want to leave. You know? So, <laughs> because you know, it's sunny. It's nice. You know, everything's all good. So we kind of settled there. We have a home there near my, uh, my near my parents. But uh, of course, I was traveling, I would say, for the last I mean, basically almost all my career um, has been based in Europe. So I would say 90 to 95% of my work usually is in Europe. So that's a long trip. You cannot go to LA on the weekends. You know what I mean? Uh, it's just not possible. So we struggled through that for quite a long time. And uh, as it just got more and more difficult, I said, okay, it's enough. We're going to Europe. Uh, I had bought an apartment in, in Berlin probably about 15 years ago because I was singing there often and it was dirt cheap at that time dirt cheap and we needed a base in Europe because you know we were both singing in Germany and France and different places so it made a lot of sense we never lived there but uh, we would go when we sang there we would stop and stay there for a couple weeks while you sing a show or even a month and then leave Uh, sometimes we would go there switch our baggage change clothes you know we left our um, winter clothes there switch it up and then go to the next place um we would rent it to singers sometimes here and there, you know, friends and stuff. Uh, but then I eventually said, okay, it's enough. So about three years ago, we went full time to Berlin. So, you know, it took a lot. I have an Italian passport also. So the logistics of actually be- becoming residents there were very, very easy. Uh, even though uh, Katrina and our boys, they don't have Italian citizenship, but because I have it, they immediately got the residency. So that was really great. And, um, you know, then there was the whole fact, the whole issue of getting health insurance and getting them in, uh, registered in school and, you know, blah, 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 all the stuff. But I have to say, even in a way, it's been more tiring for me because now when I sing in Paris or London or wherever, if I have a couple of days off, I rush home, I fly home in two hours. And I have a couple of days, you know, with the family, the, uh, hang out with the boys, take them to school, do whatever. And then I fly back and do my next performance, you know, or, or get back into rehearsals. So it's been much better in that sense. I see that I, I, I don't have a, until now, I don't have this, you know, six to eight week absence and literally not being able to come, you know. And so now singing in, in Chicago, I've been, you know, gone about six weeks almost. Uh, and I haven't been able to go. They've been in school, so they can't come. They're coming tomorrow, actually, <laughs> because uh, they have their two-week uh, kind of fall break. Um, but yeah, so that's how it is now. But anyway, most of the time I'm in Europe. So it's so. Better. what languages are spoken at home and what languages are they studying in? Like, yeah. are they st- studying, are they in American school in Berlin or are they? No, no, actually. So I wanted that. well, first off, uh, Katharina speaks only Russian to them. So they speak Russian since childhood and they speak English for me. And uh, now they're speaking very good German because they, well, the little one goes to all German school because I thought, you know, let him just go for it. He started school in Germany. So that's all he's known. So he's doing very well in German. And my older boy, Alessandro, who's 14, he goes to international school, but it's half and half, half German and half English. So he's also doing very well. So for me, I thought I will give them everything that I didn't quite have uh, growing up. So right now they're basically trilingual and uh, Alessandro's studying Spanish already in school. So that's the next one. So it's uh, so they're probably going to become CIA agents. Yeah, that would be yeah. great, you know, or something like that, <laughs> or an international opera yeah. singer. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Do you have any anecdotes for us about? I just want to give you a chance to like big up a company that was particularly helpful uh, with understanding about your situation with having kids and having a wife who might be also doing a gig somewhere. Was there any company that was like, yes, we've got it. Here's somebody we're going to assign this, you know, whatever um, production rehearsal. Uh, production room to like watch your kids for you yeah (laughs) well I mean there are there are not anything uh that I've seen in opera houses that are really set up you know to help parents necessarily of course there are certain teams and certain um management uh at different opera houses who are very understanding of it 
And uh, well, before COVID, for example, I used to bring uh, the boys, especially Katarina, she, she loves that, to bring the boys to rehearsal very often, you know? Um, you know, and they feel at home in the theater because we brought them so many times. They're very well behaved because they know, you know, how it is, they feel how it is. Um, <clears throat> nowadays, it's a little bit more tricky because, you know, no one can come backstage anymore. But, um, you know, for example, in London, I was singing Covent Garden. Actually, we were singing together. You know, we don't sing together too often, but sometimes. And we were doing a magic flute there several years ago now. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the team said, oh, Alessandro's here. Why doesn't he, uh, you know, he could be in the show. He can be one of Papageno's little kids, you know, that runs out, you know, during the duet. And uh, we said, yeah, that would be great. It would be so fun. So they sent him, he even got paid and he was in his little <laughs> costume and he was having so much fun on stage. And when we did our bow, we had him in between us when we took our bow mm. and it was a great experience. He made a couple friends there that he still speaks to from England, you know, that he still talks to that were in the cast with him. Uh, so, you know, there's been a few times where it worked out well, but, um, you know, nowadays it's a little bit different, obviously, you know, so I, I, I don't envy some parents now, you know, because you, you really have to have someone at home because, you know, you can't bring anyone to the theater. So your career seems to be on the rise. I know it's been sort of a, a, a long game for you, but I feel like we are in the Casanova sans right now. <laughs> and uh, I hope so. I'm, I'm so, you know, looking forward to the next thing. And I, I think we should acknowledge that uh, your success is coming now, despite the very big disadvantage you have of being just a very unattractive person. <laughs> it's really hard to like look at you. On well, this. you, know, you can, <laughs> well, you know, you can't have everything. I got, I got the hair. That's about it. You know. So, <laughs> so you're you're uh, you're a very good looking guy, Thank and you. um, you know, my audience knows me that I'm trying to be very. Uh, <laughs> Well behaved it's okay. here. It's okay. Um, I'm relaxed. I cannot be offended. Don't worry. Do you have any <laughs> any tips about like how you manage to like keep the upper body strength? I mean, like in Elixir of Love, you're basically parading around in a tank top, you know, and we'll right. see, and like all the women, the, the chorus are like, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a bit handsy there. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I is mean, this, is fitness part of your, you know, what you do just to be marketable? Yeah. Well, I I never think. Well, okay, no, that would be a lie. I don't not ever think that it is important. It is important, um, but it's something that I always enjoy doing anyway, because um, it's one way I deal with stress, you know, because uh, um, stress just sucks, as we all know. So for me, exercising um, just, you know, kind of pushes some of that back, you know, the, the normal stresses of, of life, of course, uh, of having a family and being and traveling all the time, being alone all the time. Uh, and then, of course, the career itself, you know, it's not, I mean, it's really tricky sometimes, you know, you, you have to fight your own demons all the time. And, and I would say 70% of them are not vocal, but mental, you know what I mean? So I think uh, exercise um, helps me with that. On the other side of it, uh, you know, nowadays, um, you know, the visual is more important than it used to be. I, I don't agree that it should be more important than the singing. I do, I do still think that singing is and the voice is really the most important part of it. But if we can be extremely honest in this type of time, this day that we live in, it's more and more important now, the looks, you know, it, not only to be believable in the roles that you're playing, but I mean, that's, we're just a visual society, you know, we want to see something beautiful. I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about any particular pop star, for example, but my favorite music is in the 60s and 70s and even 80s. And those musicians were usually incredible. They wrote incredible songs, great lyrics. I mean, of course, you've got the silly 80s songs too, but, but a lot of them were, I mean, incredible musicians. They played their own instruments. They wrote their own songs. Are they the most pretty? Usually not. <laughs> when you see some of those bands, you think, 
Oh, okay, back then, of course, they were the sex symbols, but some of them you think now you're like, it's not the most beautiful, you know, air, I don't know, air supply, you know, they weren't yeah. the most pretty guys ever. They're not like the boy bands of, you know, let's say the 90s or, or 2000s, who are much more, you know, cute, handsome dudes or whatever. And now you know? they're androgynous. Now they're Yeah, like well, that's even that's a whole other story. Uh, anyway, but uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it was more the, the focus was more on the songwriting and the, the way they played and all those things. Whereas nowadays, it's not as much that as, you know, let's just be honest. So sometimes I think some things fall through the cracks. So I do appreciate that I can use some of my uh, natural attributes, but, and I, and I pay attention to them, but I never rely on them because uh, I, I love the music too much. So I'm, I'm really trying, I'm really trying to get better. And if so, if, you know, some of the people say, oh, you look cute, then I'll say, awesome, thank you very much. That's really great. But um, I won't go crazy. You know, I'll just concentrate on the singing more than the, you know, I, I don't, I don't have six pack, you know, it's too much work. <laughs> it's just too crazy, you know, but I can, I can, you know, I can do some stuff and, you know, be fit, but uh, yeah, I don't want to get too crazy. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll leave that there so that I don't come <laughs> off as being too thirsty. <laughs> no problem, no problem, no problem. <laughs> um, Charlie Castronovo, I'm just really thrilled that you agreed to do this. Uh, thank pleasure. you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Uh, it's a pleasure. So my thanks once again to Charlie. Uh, in the middle of the interview, we heard him and Katarina Surina singing O Suave Fanchula from a Katarina Surina's uh, recital disc, uh, which he makes a guest appearance on. And that last little bit was, I believe, the dress rehearsal of Lyric Opera of Chicago. Uh, so this very recent recording of Charlie singing with Lyric Opera Orchestra, a little furtive tear to end this interview. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. The New York Times reports that as concert halls and opera houses are welcoming patrons again, visa backlogs are leading to a wave of artist cancellations and scrambling to replace musician rosters. The Metropolitan Opera had to replace two Russian singers in its production of Boris Gudunov, and who knows how many Lyric Opera Chicago Macbeths were lost to the backlog. <laughs> Arts groups are calling on the government to fast-track these visas. 27-year-old Italian countertenor Mirto Milani, along with his girlfriend Paola Zani and Paola's sister Silvia, have been charged with the murder of Laura, Laura Zilziani, the mother of the sisters. Details of the alleged crime get more and more operatic as it was revealed Milani also had a clandestine relationship with the younger sister and the murder weapon, poison. The trio remain in prison awaiting trial. In better countertenor news, Reginald Mobley is being championed in The Guardian for his scholarship on historical black musicians working in England during the UK's Black History Month. Said Mobley, I'm ready to unwhitewash the classical music canon to show who we really were and to show that the past is actually in full color. Musical America has named Missy Mazzoli the 2022 Composer of the Year, and bass baritone Devon Tynes joins her as Vocalist of the Year. Each is the subject of a feature article in the all-digital Musical America, but uh, we can't afford a subscription, so that's all we can say about it for now. The awards will be streamed on Facebook on December 5th. 
You see, we're putting your donations to good use and not spending it on Musical America. <laughs> James Dara directed a queer retelling of Bellini's Capuletti e Montecchi for Opera Omaha with the role of, with the role of Romeo, traditionally cast as a mezzo-soprano in male drag, portrayed as a woman in a star-crossed relationship with Julietta. The Belcanto Opera also marked the return of Opera Omaha after their 20-month pandemic hiatus. In trade news, Atlanta Symphony Orchestra has appointed Natalie Stutzman to be the company's fifth music director. The contralto will be the first woman to lead the ASO and only the second woman to lead a major American orchestra, period. Plus, friend of the show Cindy Sadler has been named the new marketing and communications manager at Florida Grand Opera. Apparently, it's just a good week for contraltos. Director Francesca Zambello has announced that the 2022 season at Glimmerglass will be her last as artistic and general director of the festival. I am so proud of this company and all we have accomplished over the last decade, said Zambello. This is not goodbye. It is a time of transition and excitement for this company I adore. On the disabled list, an entire chorus. When four choristers at La Monet tested positive for COVID-19, the company said the show would still go on. The remaining performances of Lodovic Mortelmann's Die Kinderen der Zee will take place without a chorus. Exit stage right. Once again, this is breaking news. Uh, Edita Gubarova, the iconic coloratura soprano, has passed away at the age of 74. Our full tribute coming in two weeks. Composer Luis Di Pablo has died at the age of 91. The Basque, the Basque avant-garde composer composed a number of operas, including Q and El Viajero Indiscreto, and composed the first lyrical work using a computer in 1966. He was also known for his translations of books on Schoenberg and Webern. Michigan Opera Theater co-founder Karen Vanderklut de Kiera has died at the age of 80. De Kiera studied composition before helping lay the groundwork for the company, eventually serving as art educator and community composer for MOT. She also wrote Working Ideas, a book on running opera educational programs, and co-authored a number of children's books. Raymond Nievik, concertmaster for the Metropolitan Opera for over 40 years, has died at the age of 89. Nievik was only the second American-born musician to hold that role and has received a great deal of credit for helping to raise the standard of playing in the orchestra as a whole during his tenure. And on this day, October 18th, Reinhard Kaiser gave two first, first performances, Sieg der Fruchtbaren Pomona and Kaiser Lucius Verus Oder die Sieg, Siegende Troja Pomona in 1702 and uh, Lucius Verus in 1728, both in the Las Vegas of the early 18th century, Hamburg. In 1706, it was the birth of opera composer Baldassare Galuppi. In 1752, it was the first performance of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's opera Le Devin du Village, or The Village Seer, before the King of Fontainebleau. And that is the same Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you philosophy students. In 1834, Gaetani Gaetano Donizetti, premiered his revamped version of Maria Stuarda called Buon del Monte. In 1854, Charles Gounod's opera La Nonne Sanglante, the Sobbing Nun, premiered in Paris. <laughs> in 1898, it was the birth of Austrian-American singer, dancer, actress, Lottie Lania, also the wife of Kurt Weill. In 1920, English tenor Alexander Young was born. In 1922, the BBC was formed, the British Broadcasting Company, to bring information, cultural programming, arts, and music to homes in the UK. In 1930, baritone Barry McDaniel, American, born in Topeka, Kansas, and in, was born. And in 1945, we say happy birthday <laughs> to the American soprano Betsy Norden, who gave 522 performances at the Met in 39 different roles. It only took us 522 minutes. That is your two minute <laughs> drill.
That is a little piece called Die Nachtigall, or the, the Nightingale, by a composer named Alibiev. I forget. It's a Russian composer. I don't know what his first name is. I probably should have looked that up. But I have <laughs> a um, recital disc of hers. I think it was like her 25th anniversary concert, 25th anniversary of like just being on the stage. And she sings this as her opening. So, you know, she's not even fully warmed up yet. And she pulls something like this off, which is like takes so much control to sing like that. And that's mm -hmm. what she was known for. I mean, she was known for these incredible technical feats that just are jaw dropping. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've listened to so many of her recordings. Um, she really means a lot to me. And um, this is, you know, she just retired and she retired a little bit early than she intended to because of the pandemic. And right. uh, yeah, this is just uh, really awful news. We also learned today that Colin Powell died, not opera related, but just it's been one of those days like, man, what when the other shoe is going to drop, you know? So once again, uh, our full tribute to Edita Gaborova coming up in two weeks. We'll definitely be doing a full Hall of Fame there. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Stitcher or you can favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on the Dallas Opera Network if you're just listening on the, the podcast as well. Uh, I, before we get into the news, I do want to say, as a former philosophy student myself, I am ashamed I did not know Rousseau wrote an opera. I know, right? <laughs> and, and the wild thing is that I found this out not because of this show, but literally three hours before we started recording I happen to be on philosophy student TikTok, former philosophy major TikTok, <laughs> and someone just like threw that information in my face and I lost my mind. Anyway. <laughs> I'm surprised. I mean, I know that he's not the right era for you. Uh, True, yeah. Too, too early, yeah. But you do have, uh, I'm sure, the complete uh, opus of uh, this guy was named Luis de Pablo, the one who wrote the first computer oh, opera. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. Unfortunately, <laughs> you can't. It, it is hard to find that particular recording of the of the 1966 computer thing. It's only mm -hmm. LP and never made it, which I think is kind of ironic considering it was digital originally. Oh, but but on a on a side note, Death and the Powers, the Todd Macover opera, uh, that was yeah, just released yeah, yeah, on yeah. CD. And yeah, that's like, finally. Yeah, I know, and that was from a production like before you were born. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Chicago Opera Theater, I saw it. It was really fun. Yeah, it's great. I love that stuff. So the first thing I want to talk about is this weird, weird story out of Italy about the murderous countertenor okay. helping is... his girlfriend and also lover apparently I mean, like, try we to murder. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is not actually, this is a horrifying story. It really and, is. And right now, there hasn't been written about in American press. It's only in Italian press. But they right. are, like, really into the story. But there's lots of different sources for this. But, yeah, apparently this countertenor uh, was dating uh, Paola and then was having, like, a secret relationship with the sister, Sylvia. And the mother, Laura, uh, is a cop. And uh, it had to do with something like money. And they tried to poison her with, like, some kind of herbal tea. It didn't work. And so... Um, they did another poison thing and they hit the body and it's just like, whoa, it's, like... Yeah, it, it's, it, it's literally like out of like a murder novel or like, or like an opera. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if someone tried to make an opera out, out of this at the moment it's considered tasteful to do so, or probably mm. about <laughs> 10 years before that. Um, but it's an absolutely wild story. I, I think it'll probably trickle over into the, uh, English speaking world press pretty Eventually, soon. Yeah. And we'll bring coming, you updates when it coming does. Coming to you on Netflix very soon. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Your your favorite true crime podcast. <laughs> we can do a crossover with Opera Box Score. Uh, and much better news, I am very excited for this Natalie Stutzman appointment. It's it's so exciting. It's about time. Uh, for, number one, I love it when singers go into onto the conducting podium because mm -hmm. I feel like they bring something very specific that a lot of conductors don't. Um, most conductors, I feel like, usually start off with a, a piano or they Violin, start off yeah. with, a, yeah, yeah, one of those, <laughs> one of the usual suspect kind of instruments. But whenever I see someone conducting uh, who knows how to sing, especially when they're conducting a vocal work, yeah. um, you see that pr that priority immediately comes through. Uh, I feel like we're still dealing with, with a lot of... Um, sort of in the classical music world there's some like some conductors have like what, what i could generously call an anti-opera bias 
you know um it's sort of a holdover i think from the from the 60s and 70s and the hardcore avant-garde days where everyone was like oh we're only listening to really heady stuff and this opera thing is too emotional for us to deal yeah. with and you know and too silly no but i mean we see like we're just talking about it like placido domingo you know um yeah. he uh, he conducted operas and like he, that's 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 what he knew you know and uh whether or not he did a good job of it, you know, that's that was the repertoire that he was familiar with. Uh, Natalie Stutzmann, you know, conducting a real symphony orchestra here that doesn't do a lot of operatic repertoire, you know, and she's also right. the guest conductor at Philadelphia. So, I mean, there's going to be they some do, singers on her concerts and whatnot, but I mean, this they do is have a good, an excellent chorus that she'll be working with. So uh, I'm yeah. excited that, you know, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of hers. I mean, I would, absolutely. I adore her. If she only sang Handel, I would be still a huge, huge fan. But ever since she started doing the whole conducting thing and she has that group Orfeo 455 or Orfeo 55, forget what it's called, but like mm. where she conducts and sings at the same time, it's like, ugh, I'm crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what we call yeah. in the business, pulling a Barbara Hannigan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I think the, the biggest story this week, though, is probably the problem concerning visas. Because uh, right now in the U.S. particularly, um, there's, you know, everything's starting to open back up, um, but there's lots of problems, right? Ticket sales are not what they should be. Um, in a lot of people's eyes, a lot of people are still nervous to return because of Delta. And then on top of that, uh, half your singers for especially, you know, international singers, you just can't pull in. Uh, it, it reminds me of a lot of the issues surrounding um, the, the Brexit negotiations. And mm -hmm. I think the U.S. and uh, England are both going to take pretty big hits off of this in terms of bringing in outside talent, um, which could be a, honestly a major hit to the English speaking world in general, because that's the two big English speaking places right there. Um, I mean, it is also going to give a chance to, I mean, this Craig Kulko, who uh, I think is lives in California, That's uh, true, was, yeah. was able to come in and, you know, make his lyric opera debut singing Macbeth, you know, in Chicago. Uh, that's a big deal for him, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that there's two sides of the coin, you know? Um, it's sad that certain singers, certain artists, you know, uh, from Asian countries and whatever countries that are banned, you know, from ha having, uh, flying into the U S yeah, that, that's really, that really sucks. For yeah. Us. It's, it's difficult. And I believe they're the, uh, uh, the U S, uh, I forget which department it is, but one of the departments, the state, department. Like some, the state department, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the departments, I'm just an <laughs> opera guy. I don't know these things. Uh, the You're a philosophy guy. We just found out. <laughs> I'm a philosophy, philosophy guy. Didn't, uh, I got into, uh, into the opera business to make money. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, the state department issued like this really nothing sort of statement, like we're looking into ways to make this better. And, yeah. you know, it, it's yeah. clearly not a priority. I mean, it is not who is thinking about opera in the white house. Like, Oh, we have to really fast track this because we need Lang Lang to be able to come and get his, his piano recital. You know? he as did soon come. as possible. Lang Lang did get his visa at the last he minute. He did it. So, he did yeah. it. And he came to Chicago and was sold out. So I'm glad that even though, uh, George, Matt and Ashley were not here, we still managed to fulfill our James Dara mention quote. Yeah, of course. Week. That's the only reason why I included that story. <laughs> But that sounds pretty cool. Like, just let Romeo be, you know, a lady. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I, I feel like it's such a no-brainer. Uh, with a lot of pants rolls, it's like, why not? Why not just let let, uh, let him yeah. be a make lady? Make it gay. Yeah, make it gay. Hashtag yeah. make it. Gay I mean, that's <laughs> in a way that's what was appealing, probably, uh, for nineteenth century and early twentieth 20th, 20th century audiences, is to like see a little bit of gayness on stage. You know, even though yeah. They were wearing pants, you know. We knew that they they had breasts too. <laughs> there, was there a creepier way for you to have said that? <laughs> I'm not into we those. Got... Sorry, it's just not for me. Sorry. So I was. I'm always embarrassed when I say that word. So <laughs> good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. It's how we end things around here, even without George in charge. Oliver, what is your call for the day? 
Well, Janine DeBeek's CD is going to probably be out by the time you hear this episode. I think it's called Mirrors, but it's uh, Baroque Aria's CD. And I'm very excited about that. And we'll probably talk about that again after we get a chance to listen to it. But I'm going to, for, for, for once, maybe not once, for at least it's rare that I promote something that's my own work. But Charlie was so good on listening to singers. It was really one of my favorite uh, episodes of that show on WFMT. And you can hear it on the WFMT archives. You just go to WFMT.com and you uh, look for the page for listening to singers. And then you could see the instructions for how to listen to previous shows. It'll only be in the archive for two weeks. So by the time you hear this, you better rush over and get to it. But he was such a fantastic guest. And we talk about the role of Alfredo. And he made me cry. I'm not even kidding you. I have a little bit of what is probably a bad call. Let's be real. <laughs> On October 20th, Anna Netrebko will release her first cookbook. It will be in German only. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, entitled, and uh, forgive my pronunciation here, Der Geschmack meines Lebens, das erste Buch von Open Topstar, Anna Netrebko, which I believe <laughs> translates to The Taste of My Life, the first book yes. from opera top star, Anna Netrebko, <laughs> which if there's anything that wasn't more written by Anna Netrebko, I, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm sure that uh, the recipes will be tasty. She posts pictures all the time on Instagram. Yeah. I just hope it doesn't contain She's any of her taste. Yeah. bad takes. So <laughs> we'll find out about that. I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, that is it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is me, Weston Williams. For our dreamy guest, Charles Castronovo, I'm Weston Williams once again asking you to continue the conversation about opera with a WNBA trophy in your hand. Go Sky. We're back with an all-new show next week when it's our annual Halloween spooktacular. Ooh. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Anna Netrebko recipes. Whoa. Join us. <laughs>